Hello and joining you on November the 2nd, a day that is famous as El Día de los Muertos in Mexico. When the souls of the dead return to visit their living family members a la Nairo Quintana. More on that later. Sort of, sort of, Nairo Quintana, figuratively speaking. More on that later. My name is Daniel Freiber and I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll, yes, discuss a certain matchbox-sized Colombian's return to Movistar. We'll examine the tinderbox that is or could be the latest attempt to change pro cycling's financial model but mainly we'll be settling in for a long overdue fireside chat with our own president of the United States of Podcasting the Motown maestro Agir Dezer Citroëns Larry Warbass Larry first question did you know that the fireside chats were a series of evening radio addresses given by Franklin D Roosevelt 32nd president of the United States between 1933 and 1944 I did not oh I actually did I actually have heard about that yeah uh I mean I maybe didn't know all the details but I did know that there these fireside chats existed and well that's what we'll be doing today but you are in the United States of America at the moment you are back in your homeland um Traverse City yes yeah Traverse City Home of the Cherry Pits bit contest. Yes. And you're not quite back on the bike yet, but you were telling me before we started recording, you are savoring the last couple of days of real off-season. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, probably have... I start again next week. So, yeah, a few more days off the bike and, uh, yeah, trying to make the most of it. You've been running. We've been talking about that as well. We were uh, were exchanging notes on running times speculating about how good a runner tom dumoulin really is um following his exploits in a half marathon uh, over the last few days about an hour and 10 minutes in a half marathon um i suggested that based on some social media footage that's emerged of nairo quintana um that pair who who had quite a battle in a giro d'italia wouldn't have too much of a battle um, were Nido ever to try his hand or try his legs at half marathon running but Larry um, how are you enjoying the running yeah not too bad I mean <clears throat> I've just kind of been more running on feel uh, a few years ago you know I, <laughs> I, I, I was getting into uh, yeah running a bit I was running a lot and then uh, I bought like you know GPS watch <clears throat> and then I realized that the GPS watch just sucked all the fun out of running and uh then I was just trying to beat myself the whole time, you know. So I have ditched the GPS watch. Now I, I do use Strava on my phone so I can look at how fast I ran after. Uh, but I just throw the phone in the pocket and, you know, just uh, soul search a bit and uh, stroll through the woods, you know. Does that not also apply to bike computers and power meters, though? That they also Do they also suck the life out of, suck the fun out of cycling? It's possible, but I'm too far gone on those, so uh, yeah, there's no taking those away from me now. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how is the form and fitness um, as you, well, as you prepare to embark on this first block of off-season training? I mean, how much weight do you put on? How much fitness do you think you'd lose? Um, I'd probably put on, like, I, I, to be honest, I haven't, I tried to weigh myself yesterday, but the scale was out of batteries at my parents' house, so... I thought maybe that's a good sign, you know. Uh, hopefully it didn't break when I stood on it, you know. Uh, but, <clears throat> no, I, I probably gained like a couple, two to three kilos in the off season. Probably three, I don't know. I, I mean, to be honest, I I don't look like I've gained that much, so that's a good sign. But, uh, no. 
I just try, you know, not to pay too much attention and, you know, I'm trying not to like go crazy either. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't touch the bike. So, and you know, I tried to run like a little bit, but just more for fun and to stay a bit active. So I would say, yeah, I probably lost a significant amount of fitness, but that's also the idea. So, well, Larry, we'll talk a lot more about your fitness, both past, present and, well, past, present and future <laughs> later on in the episode. We're going to zero in on your 2023 season, start to look ahead a little bit to 2024. First, Larry, tradition dictates that we must give listeners a bit of a news roundup. We're going to start with something that was sizzling off the press when we recorded last week, and that is the revelation by Reuters that several teams we are working on a new breakaway league or series of races aiming to stabilize if not reinvent cycling's economic model we learned after last week's recording that five teams including well the five teams involved included Jumbo Visma Ineos Grenadiers Sudar Quickstep EF Education First and Little Trek in fact they didn't include those teams they, they were the five teams spearheading the movement or cabal or working group are Jumbo Visma Chief Richard Plugger and Sudal Quickstep Majority Shareholder Zdenek Bakala the project has a name the One Cycling Harmony Project it's been in existence for a couple of years and it's worked or they have worked with Ernst & Young that is one of the big four accounting companies to sound out potential investors now as i sort of predicted or guessed last week it does seem that the main most interested potential investor could be the pif saudi investment fund also behind live golf and the huge fracture that's occurred in the administration of that sport pif has over 300 other sports sponsorships investments it's heavily involved in boxing formula one snooker horse racing etc it's unclear how far the talks have gone with PIF or indeed the CVC private equity group, which was involved in a similar plan to shake up the sport a decade ago and still owns about 65% of the equity in Formula One. They've also been linked to One Cycling, this new idea, this new project. The UCI and ASO are both aware of what's going on and have spoken to One Cycling about their plans. Larry, um, I know you, you haven't necessarily been following developments in the world of pro cycling that closely over the last couple of weeks but you do know about this you read about this what's your initial reaction um well i guess my initial reaction would be like i hope uh some good can come of it you know um i would also think you know it looks like they've tried to do various things similar to this i feel like before and unfortunately mm. it hasn't always panned out but you know, I guess if they can get the right investors and yeah, maybe like, um, yeah, if like Saudi Arabia is motivated, um, you know, obviously there's the funding there and they probably have the power to be able to do something because it's going to, yeah, take a lot of money and a lot of effort. So if you have the right people behind it, then yeah, maybe it's possible, but it's kind of one of those things where, you know, sort of you'll believe it when you see it. And But yeah, it would be interesting uh, if it's possible to change something up but yeah i think we definitely need a lot of change if we're gonna like progress as a sport and uh you know i guess change the system because it's not easy to do and it's kind of been stuck in its ways for a long time yeah i mean i sort of emphasized um that that word stabilize um it's not necessarily well that's what 
the people involved in this proposed project are are emphasizing it's not necessarily about making anyone necessarily richer it's about making things more stable so we avoid situations like the one we've had recently with Jumbo Visma a lot of speculation about that team's future that team's survival um, and that of course is the number one team in the world and um, Larry I, I've been talking to people I was talking to one individual a few days ago who's certainly privy to has been privy to a lot of these um, attempts previous attempts to shake things up in professional cycling I must say this individual was very very skeptical um, skeptical about the motives of why this story has surfaced now and um, one theory is that Whatever was happening, whatever was afoot with one cycling and their preliminary negotiations with ASO in particular, um, things had gone very cold and this is an attempt to get ASO back to the table. Um, another theory is that some of the interested parties, so some of the teams, maybe some of the team managers involved, are kind of sick of a, a lack of progress with this project which as I said has been going on for um, two or three years and they're trying to shake maybe Richard Plugger and some of the individuals involved back into action and another theory is that the Saudi Arabian investment fund PIF weren't that interested initially and suddenly they are interested again and they may be back at the table um the problem, the problem with these sort of big ideas to shake things up and and diversify cycling's sort of um, economic model or strengthen cycling's economic model has always been ASO, because ASO, as again the individual that I spoke to last week said, presides over the biggest, or the the most sort of appealing monopoly in professional sport um, because there aren't really any sports where the financial power is concentrated so squarely in the hands of one entity there was a very sort of successful attempt and and this is a, a kind of model that's held up by other sports and it has been by cycling um, a model of how you maybe take the power out of the hands of someone like ASO with particularly with a view to getting your hands on some of the broadcast the right the the tv money which i think most people in cycling agree and have come to the conclusion and that is the cake that that everyone wants to divide up that's um probably the biggest asset that cycling has the tour de france broadcast rights and there was a very successful attempt to do something like this in tennis um with the atp tour and the atp tour effectively sort of took on the power of the grand slam tournaments and particularly wimbledon at first but the difference there was that there were four grand slam um events and they were all powerful in their own way and by sort of commandeering you one after the other after the other of those the ATP tour um, eventually was able to sort of well front up to Wimbledon and eventually sort of buddy up with Wimbledon as well um, all attempts to get ASO to do that in cycling have failed so far um, again 
the person I spoke to last week said this is the same rehashed cabbage that's been talked about for many <laughs> years. Um, Jan Le, Le Moyner, who is the CEO of ASO, well, I was told he's not, he's certainly not a stupid person. Um, this is the most beautiful golden goose in sport. <clears throat> he's not stupid. He's not going to give it away <laughs> to anyone. He's a clever operator. He'll maneuver around you, um, but he won't give you what you want. So, Larry, a lot of skepticism. Um, but we'll see how it develops. Certainly interesting. And, um, yeah, I mean, the idea of something like the ATP Tour, a coherent series of events that exists maybe apart from the Tour de France, but, you know, you see the same advertising hoardings at every one of these races. Um, they're they're broadcast on the same networks every, at, at, a, at sort of regular intervals every weekend. I mean, this is something that Richard Plugger has talked about. He's written a book even called The Plan, in which he, he outlines something of this nature. No races overlapping, 100 to 120 race days a year. And um, Plugger's talked about it potentially starting in 2026 which is the sort of next uci world tour mm. license cycle yeah um it sounds very appealing but might be difficult to realize yeah i think you know unfortunately i know there's many other people who have approached aso before and you know i know there's been some very serious investors that have proposed um yeah i guess to sort of try to just get a seat at the table even with less say and you know, came in with plans and like really, really, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, I know like uh, this has happened before and ASO has sort of rejected them um, because, yeah, I guess if they're the monopoly, then why would they let anyone else in, right? Uh, So I understand where they're coming from too. uh, But yeah, in the end, I think, unfortunately, it's us who sort of pay the price. Um, You know, I guess the people in the sport rather than, uh, you know, the people running it. Because, yeah, they're going to be fine, right? But um, I think, you know, it could probably... They could probably do this in a way that benefits everyone, including ASO. But uh, I guess that might shake everything up a bit, and maybe they don't want that sort of volatility, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is definitely happening is grievances about and towards Richard Plugger are, well... growing in kind of intensity um in intensity in the world tour you know the teams aren't involved in this one pro cycling project um i pretty aggrieved that this is happening and these talks are are going on we already know the aigcp um over which Richard Plugger presides is, is, has become fractured because um, there are some teams, that's the team's organisation, some of the teams are not happy at him being, um, about him being at the head of that organisation. Um, he's not the first team manager to be at the head of that organisation. We've had Patrick Lefebvre in the past, Jonathan Vorters. Um, so, you know, fractures, a lot of sort of fractures in the in the sport. And, well, as I say, we'll see, we'll see over the next few weeks um, how it's going to pan out. Line, um, sorry, Lionel. Larry, we'll move on to the second bit of news of the week. And it's a big one. Yeah, 
Nairo man, Larry. Nairo is back a casa at Movistar. The Colombian former Vuelta and Giro d'Italia winner and Nairo Quintana has re-signed with the team whose colours he sported for nearly a decade. Last year, the 33-year-old was unemployed, a positive test for the forbidden painkiller Tramadol, having led to his disqualification from the 2022 Tour de France, which he had finished in sixth place on general classification. That also led to the sort of mutual annulment of a contract extension he'd signed with his then-team Arkea Samsic. So he's been out in the cold for, well, throughout 2023, Larry, but he's back at Movistar and he's got a one-year contract and not many of us, I don't think any of us really saw this coming. Although, you may even have seen it, Larry, because you were there as well in Andorra at the Vuelta um, at the stage start, was it day three or day four? Well, a lot of us saw Nairo Man in casuals, in civvies. He was talking to Eusebio Unthue, the Movistar team manager. He was also talking to Machin, the UAE team manager. I thought this was a, more of a sort of social call, or I thought maybe was Naira was making overtures to Eusebio, but I didn't envisage it resulting in him re-signing for Movistar. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I was pretty surprised because, yeah, from <clears throat> what I understood was like uh, he was, yeah, kind of uh, a black sheep by the UCI or something. You know, I heard that like uh, they were, most teams were told like, to not sign him uh last year mm. and i think that's why he yeah he was not uh on a pro team last year but i do know that he continued to train um i know a guy who works with him as kind of like an assistant and uh yeah i mean he kept working with him the whole last year um and i know that like nairo kept training the whole year so obviously they must have had some confidence that something was going to work out um but yeah i guess i didn't see this coming because I would have thought if the UCI said it wasn't okay for any teams to sign him last year that uh, uh, they wouldn't have let any team sign him this year. But maybe they thought, okay, after a year, uh, he can come back or something. You know, I don't really know uh, how that yeah, went. But. The, 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 so last year, uh, Nairo, he appealed the decision, um, the, the Tramadol ban, and he went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And... What he and his legal team were essentially attacking or appealing was the very basis, the very right of the UCI and cycling to have a rule like this for a, for a substance that isn't wasn't banned. I should say sorry by um, according to the WADA um, banned list, but has subsequently been added to the banned list. Is now added to the banned list. For but next he year, it for was next year. It, yeah, yeah. yeah for next year. Yeah. But it was a sort of it was a direct attack on the UCI. So that's one obvious reason why the UCI w- might have been pretty unhappy and were trying to dissuade people from signing him. Uh, Larry, you probably heard as well. There were there were other rumours going around that maybe there was there was more to it and that the UCI had other grounds um, to encourage people not to sign Quintana but um, whatever resistance there was seems to have melted away Um, yes how do you think he'll get on Um, 33 years old I think he turns 34 in February Um, Movistar needed reinforcements I mean they're losing your compatriot and friend uh, Matteo Jorgensen and Emmerich Mast didn't pull up too many trees last year, did he? 
No, I mean, I think uh, for Mobistar, I think it's a great signing. You know, I mean, I think they probably got him for pretty cheap. Um, and then, you know, I think obviously he has this huge presence in Colombia. Um, so, you know, I think that's going to be great for them because it's a huge bargain, I would guess. Um, and, you know, I think their South American market is also very large. So, um, you know, I think I totally understand why they would do it uh, from a sporting uh, side and, you know, I guess also um, PR in South America side. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. You know, I guess personal opinions uh, might be different uh, on, you know, what I think about it. But um you're allowed to get, you're allowed to profile yeah, I mean, personal I don't opinions know. I, on this podcast. I, I think if something like that actually happened, then you know, like I, I don't really like to see that, like someone like that being able to come back into the sport. You know, um, if you know if he had really done that, um, you know, I mean, there's no no reasoning for that. You know, you know what I mean. I mean, uh, I just think like obviously once it was banned, like everyone knew it was banned. So why, why would you be using it? You know I mean? To me, that just makes yeah. absolutely zero sense. And then, yeah, you know, that also. And then he really, lead. he really, as I said, he really sort of dug his heels in because he could have, well, faced next to no penalty apart from the disqualification from that Tour de France. So he would have lost his result from that Tour de France, which was a prestigious result, important for his team, Arkea Samsi, but he could have come back to racing immediately and by digging his heels in by appealing the decision um he well he sort of maneuvered himself into a corner really um i but, do think though like he wouldn't have been able to race with his team regardless you know so i think yeah, that would have been done but yeah they reacted badly you could say appropriately to yeah. um to him testing positive for tramadol um yeah a couple of weeks ago i mean he, he looked pretty desperate larry he was talking to some what we would consider pretty small teams i spoke to Gianni savio a couple of a few days ago larry um his team gv gw sorry shimano were in the continental division last year and he had conversations with uh, nairo Incidentally, Gianni Savio, um, we should send him our best wishes because he's recovering from a crash, Larry. Um, oh, no. He, like you, has, um, has been out running. Well, he's, he, he always runs. Um, he's a year-round runner, is Gianni, and he had a crash a few weeks ago. And, um, yeah, he broke a couple of bones and he's laid low, but he's recovering, which is good news for all of us. Um, Larry, so, Nidalman, back back in the peloton in 2024 another couple of tidbits been widely reported in italy that wout van art will ride the giro d'italia in 2024 with half an eye on gc although jumbo visma boss richard plugger has clarified he's at pains to to clarify that no decision has yet been made on this or indeed any of his leaders race programs next year Larry, did you pay much attention to the Giro d'Italia presentation and well, the fact that there's a bit less climbing, looks as though there's a bit less climbing next year, only 42,000 metres of climbing, which, um, yeah, I mean, by recent standards, it's a, it's a quite a light Giro d'Italia, maybe a Wout van Aert friendly Giro d'Italia. Yeah, I mean, I did see that, yeah, it's something like 10,000 metres of climbing less than... Uh than last year or the last years, um, for example. And then there's yes, something, I think it was like 68 kilometers of time trialing, uh, individual time trialing. So yeah, it's definitely good for Wild Van Aert. But I mean, 
regardless, okay, yeah, I guess maybe if it's a normal Jiro, maybe it's a little bit hard for him, but like, you know, showing, seeing what he's been capable of in the last tours, uh, you know, I would kind of not put anything uh, against him. You know, I, I think he's I really capable. Huh? I can't see him winning. Maybe not winning. Ah, I mean, maybe if it's flatter, I don't know. I guess it depends. But mm -hmm. I do think the Giro is a lot more climby than, you know, the other Grand Tours. Um, so I don't know if that would suit him all that well. But, um, you know, I guess you never know because they are kind of like draggy, long stages uh, with mm -hmm. a lot of fatigue, which I think he's quite good at that. So I don't know. I just think he's one of those guys that I would never write off and... You know, I think if he was going to attack the GC, it would be to go for probably like the podium or a top five and not for anything less than that, you know? So. Mm, I'm a bit of a skeptic, Larry. Um, unless, okay. unless the snow <laughs> intervenes, which it may well mm. do, because in spite of the fact that there is a bit less climbing, there are still some pretty high mountains in the Giro route. And we've seen stage mm, what cancellations, stages being changed almost, well, almost every year over the last five or ten years and were that to happen then it would well it, it certainly could favor Wout van Aert a la sort of in the way it did Francesco Moser in 1984 we shall see and to conclude the news roundup we sway wildly out of my comfort zone to Belgium first where the Koppenberg cross took place this week with world champion Femke van Empel taking the women's race and Thibaut Nace the men's and then we venture into the even more hostile environment of the track to tell you that the Dutchman Jeffrey Hulant broke the decade-old one-kilometer time trial world record in Aguascalientes in a time of 55.433 seconds, over half a second better than the previous mark, belonging to François Pervis. Larry, that's pretty fast, isn't it? That's fast, yeah. How I don't know why, but I actually remembered the exact time that he did it. And I, I was just testing myself. And uh, yeah. How fast could you ride a kilometer? <sighs> Probably not in 55.433. <laughs> Maybe give me 60 seconds. I don't know. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour. And this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN, which keeps your internet connection safe and secure wherever you are. I've been a NordVPN customer for a number of years now, and I did that because I was becoming aware that connecting to the internet using public hotspots or hotel Wi-Fi or just using my phone to get online were perhaps not as secure as I had thought they were. There are times when your data may be more vulnerable or the connection might be easier to hack, and I wanted to avoid that. So I signed up for NordVPN, and all of our listeners can get an exclusive deal at nordvpn.com slash TCP. What is a VPN? Well, it's a virtual private network which keeps your data safe and your internet connection secure. NordVPN creates a secure, encrypted connection between your device and a remote server, and that way your data can travel securely instead of through the internet service provider. In layman's terms, it creates an online tunnel that keeps your connection safe and all of your data secure. And there are lots of benefits for this beside the security aspect. When traveling abroad, you can use NordVPN to ensure that you connect to your online streaming services just as you would at home. 
You can avoid being tracked around the internet for marketing purposes, if that's something you want to avoid. And when shopping, you can avoid targeted pricing, uh, be notified of fake websites and other tactics which may trick customers into giving over their sensitive details. And it also means your card details are safe and secure when you're shopping online. Now, with NordVPN, you can protect up to five devices, so uh, your laptop, tablet, phone, even your smart TV if you want. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee as well, so there's no risk if it turns out not to be for you. And every purchase of a two-year plan will receive four bonus months on top at nordvpn.com tcp. So that's NordVPN's best value two-year plan with an additional four-month cover for cycling podcast listeners at nordvpn.com tcp. Well, Larry, we've had our news roundup. We've set the scene a little bit. We've well, we've invited the listeners into our into into our sort of wood panelled study. They've pulled up a seat um, alongside us by the fire, and now it's time for our fireside chat. A bit of a debrief. I wanted to do a debrief with you, Larry. We've been promising to do this. Oh, I think since um, we saw each other in Madrid on the last day of the Vuelta, we'd said that we would. Um, break down your 2023 season and get your verdict. Larry, your 2023 season, you raced 88 days, um, which is a lot. 89 if you count the gravel race. If you yeah. count the, which gravel race? The uh, Unbound. Ah, so, eight... which, considering it was 11 hours, I yeah, think that yeah, counts yeah. as we'll two days. Okay, 89 race days. I haven't got the kilometers in there of Unbound. How many kilometers was Unbound? 280? Something obscene. Oh, uh, that was 280, yeah, yeah. So... Or wait, no, 320, I think. 320. So, add that to your total number of kilometers. 13,641. That's the highest, Larry, in your pro career that you've ever done. Um, you were in a couple of long breaks in Paris-Nice. One at the UAE Tour. Two in the Giro. One in the Vuelta Burgos. One in the Copa Bernocchi. Your team won nine races, including three in the World Tour. There was a stage in the Giro d'Italia, the Tour de Suisse, and the Tour de France. They finished the year, or well, they are currently Ager Dozer Citroën, 18th on the UCI World Ranking, down three positions from 2022. You are, though, still ahead of a couple of World Tour teams, uh, Arkea and Astana. So, Larry, there are some vital stats. Uh, maximum heart rate, probably about 152 for the season. <laughs> and we talked about your your unusually low heart rate um, at the Vuelta España. But, Larry, you know, just tell us. Um, let's paint in very broad brush strokes initially. Happy? Not happy? Um, yeah, I mean, average. <laughs> I-, I wouldn't say, like super disappointed but i wouldn't say happy that's for sure you know it was pretty average season for me as well as for the team you know <laughs> go on then expand a little bit more um average because we talked going back almost 12 months we did uh we talked about your 2022 season and then later on a few months later we also talked about 2023 we set some we heard about your goals and we got into the weeds a little bit about how you're going to achieve them or how you hope to achieve them what kind of work you would do what kind of um the ways in which you maybe need to shift your focus at certain times of the year the fact that you needed to avoid crashes for example and what did you do well do you think 
Well, I avoided the crash as well, so that's good. Uh, no, no bad injuries, and I don't know. Maybe I crashed twice or something over the course of the season, but nothing too bad, you know. In, in all honesty, um, in all seriousness, that sounds. You know, we we sort of laugh there as though that's just good fortune. But is that a, is that a sort of a feather in your cap? Is that something you did well, and you can you can be proud of yourself for having avoided crashes? Um, yeah, I mean. <laughs> You know, it depends. I think also that could mean maybe you didn't take enough risk. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of a balance, right? You know, I think sometimes sometimes crashing can just really be bad luck. You know, I mean, if you sometimes it's totally unavoidable and sometimes it happens in the place of the Peloton where like, you know, you're supposed to be Mm -hmm. right. Like, um, you know, you see these races where it's like some guy crashes second wheel. Well, I mean, if you're fifth wheel, like you're probably not getting out of that. And so, um, you know, I think the thing is, is to a point, yeah, it's, there's a point that's luck and then there's a point that's like actually, uh, you know, I guess one thing that I think is like, I like to measure my risk, right? And uh, I'd rather maybe use a tiny bit more energy and take less risk rather than uh, go full risk and then crash more often. Because then, you know, you're going to end up missing out on a lot more if you're crashing, uh, than if you perhaps wasted a couple watts, mm. you know, here or there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily rank my season on the uh, amount of crashing I did, right? But uh, but at least it's good. You know, it was. I would say that my season this year was a bit the opposite of my season last year because I think last year I did like 30-something days because I, I ended up yeah, crashing and then being out for a couple weeks twice and... Uh, so yeah, that really puts a big damper on the season. And um, Larry, before we started recording, we were talking about a couple of well mutual acquaintances in the peloton, and and the fact that you know there are f- a, there's a good number of riders at the moment still looking for a contract for next year, sort of domestiques or good pros, established pros. One key key commodity for riders in that category is availability and consistency, and yeah. the fact that you were available to race eighty eight t. 88 days is something that your team will be very happy with yeah i mean yeah 50 50 <laughs> you know i mean the problem is uh i would say like you know the the thing that's hard is at the end of the year you know the only thing that uh i guess stays uh is pro cycling stats right you know it's it's the the results and you know you have this website like you know as you just did you know you read off you know how how long i was in the breakaway and whatever days you know so it's like you can go on pro cycling stats and you can see okay well like you know you have these numbers right and it's like okay well i didn't have i had zero results to speak of this year right um and you know i would say my job in 85 percent of the races was you know to help like our leaders and whatever and then the problem is is if your leaders didn't have a good season um which you know, as we were 18th in uh, ranking, you can see like we didn't exactly have the best season as a team. And so, you know, maybe you can do the same job. Um, and if you're on Asia Tour or if you're on Jumbo, uh, that's looked at very differently because, uh, you know, on Jumbo, the guys, they're winning every time and every time, you know what I mean, uh, frequently. And, you know, we didn't win very frequently, but maybe I would have done the same job in either place. Right. And if your leader is always winning, you can be seen as like this incredible domestique or helper or whatever. 
but you could do the exact same job and if your winner or your winner your leader doesn't win uh you know it's it's not seen in the same light and they think like oh you know i know like a a few my first year on the team i remember we were at like Tour de Limousin and um, we had the leader's jersey with uh, Benoit Cosnefois. And so I remember, you know, I rode the front for, I don't know, you know, 150K alone one stage and like controlled the breakaway and brought him back like by the circuit or whatever. Anyway, we won the race. It was great. <clears throat> and we were driving back. I was driving back to the airport with uh, our director and he was like, wow, you know, like that was so incredible. Like what you did today. Um, you know, how come you haven't done that like more often? Like, how come we haven't seen that before? And I was like, well, we've never had like the leader's jersey before. You know, we've never, I've never had the opportunity to ride the front and, you know, protect the leader's jersey, you know? So it's like, that's the hard thing sometimes in this sport is like, yeah, you can be a great teammate, but in the end, if your leader's not performing or, you know, in the leader's jersey or whatever, then, like, it's really hard to show that you are a great teammate, you know? Or maybe you are a great teammate, but, like, the team doesn't see it because, uh, yeah, in the end, there's no result uh, at the finish line. So so that's something that's hard. And um, it's interesting because, you know, we were supposed to have this debrief with um, one of the directors uh, at the end of the season. And so we had this call... Um, you know, maybe like an hour-long phone call where we went over, you know, how the season went, how just we saw you the and season. Him. Just me and him, yeah. And then, you know, he went back and then relayed it to, like, the rest of the team. And then we'll have a debrief with everyone at a, a camp at the end of November. Um, but, you know, I was like, it's kind of funny because I went and looked at Pro Cycling Stats and I, I could see, it's funny, I remembered every single race and I remembered, like, the job I did for the team, you know, because... If you just look at the results, you're like, oh, I had a shit season. Mm. You know, like, wasn't very good. Like, uh, no results. I do, I do a very up, similar right? thing, Larry. I go back and look at all the Grand Tour stays and I try and remember my hotels and restaurants. Ah, <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. bottles of wine. <laughs> but anyway, go on. Yeah. It's a good memory maybe exercise. maybe more enjoyable. You can do it. Yeah. You can do it going back yeah. years. And it's, um, it's a very testing but valuable memory exercise. Anyway, go on, Larry. Sorry. For sure. So, so yeah, I went back and I was like, oh, wow, actually, I did a really good job in a lot of these races. You know, every single race I had done, you know, from the beginning of the year to, like, you know, the Giro, for example, I was like, I could remember the exact role I played and exactly what I did for, like, the leader in every race. And, like, I was like, oh, actually, I actually had a pretty good season. But, you know, the problem is you you don't see that. Uh, and, you know, unless this is also like noted somewhere uh you know by the team they also forget that as well you know what i mean like um so maybe on some teams you know they have a very detailed report and like you know you maybe they check off like what the guy's job was what he did you know blah blah, blah. but like you know i would say on our team for example that's probably not something that's noted and so um you know it's something that can kind of be just lost uh in the wash you know what i mean um but yeah it's it's hard larry there obviously there are lots of factors that can determine whether a, a team is deemed to have a successful or less successful season um you know recruitment for example personnel is, is huge but do you get the sense uh, i mean it sounds as though this process in the management of the team is is ongoing and it will 
be ongoing for the next couple of weeks and then they'll probably feed back to all of you guys as a group but do you get the sense that there has been any or there will be any sort of soul searching in the team about one big thing that didn't go well and that needs to be changed maybe something on the coach in front or something on the I don't know whether it's equipment or uh, was there a, a sort of theme in the team throughout the season of why things weren't going as well as you, people hoped yeah I mean I think um, there is a lot of soul searching going on because you know I guess our team has a decent sized budget and I think in 2021, we were maybe eighth in the ranking. And then last year, I think we were about 13th or something or 15th, 15th, I can't remember. And then this year we were 18th. And so it was like quite a drop. And uh, so, you know, I think they realized like, well, you know, something needs to change because also for the sponsors putting in a ton of money, that's not a, yeah, that's not a good, good thing. Um, and, And I guess... In terms of the budget that our team has, that's not in line with the amount of money they're putting in um, to be, you know, 18th in the ranking. So also there's the stress of, um, you know, the uh, in three years time, all the points in the ranking and the licenses, you know. Um, So, yeah, big, uh, big stress. And, yeah, they're definitely looking at, like, you know, what we can do to change. And, yeah, I think the thing is it's not exactly the most simple solution you know it's like um i guess there's probably so many different arenas that we need to work on it's not necessarily one thing there's not one answer um and there's not just one switch we can flip to all of a sudden you know put us sort of on the right track it's i think it's kind of like an amalgamation of things that uh will help us you know i wouldn't say solve the problem because it's not necessarily one problem but uh yeah i think there's just a lot of work that needs to be done and i i mean i think they're starting to work on it so that's good it's funny larry if i look at the team's results and also the roster um while knowing i mean to be honest before looking it up um that your team had only won nine races if someone said to me did ag2 have a good season or a bad season i kind of would have said "Mm, a little bit below average but not really sure would need to sort of check would need to verify and the first thing that strikes me when i look at the roster is there were some good surprises for the team um i think felix gal was one of the revelations of the year i mean you guys probably knew that he was very strong but you know as soon as well he started to climb with the best riders at the tour of the basque country where opened my eyes and opened a lot of other people's eyes and then he confirmed that at the Tour de France. And then uh, Dorian Godon had a real breakthrough season. Um, okay, only two, it was two race wins, but I mean, maybe there's a bit of recency bias here and I was influenced by the fact that I was sort of standing on the finish line watching him win at the Giro del Veneto. And um, and Paris Peintre as well winning a stage of the Giro, which is sort of three things that a team, you know, might hope would happen at the start of a season, but they, they wouldn't have necessarily banked on it. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is uh, I guess maybe there was like slight underperformance from, well, for example, for Bedouin, um, you know, I think he had uh, a much less good year than he's had in the past. Um, you know, the last two years, he's won like a big world tour one day race. And, you know, this year he wasn't too close to that. Um, so, you know, I think that's where like, you know, 
a guy who normally gets a ton of points doesn't get a lot of points. Uh, you know, same with Greg, for example. You know, big leader didn't perform like he had in the past. Um, you know, I think those are places where we take a really big hit in terms of the ranking. Um, but then, yeah, you know, the thing is with like Dorian, for example, is like everyone knows this guy is the strongest dude on earth. Like, I mean, he is so strong. But like, unfortunately, he does not exactly have the racing uh, new or, you know, like he uh, is not exactly tactically the um, brightest rider in the peloton. And, you know, we always would joke because like, you know, we would say like, well, if if Dorian... If Dorian's sprinting in a group of 12, you know, I mean, sorry, in a group of 12 riders for the win, he'll start like 20th wheel, you know, like, because uh, like, he, he'll always start his sprint, you know, 70 miles back and uh, ends up finishing, you know, fourth or something. So, um, you know, I think for him, it's sort of just a matter of time that he figures out a few things and he'll win a lot of big races. So, to us, yeah, that wasn't a surprise. And then, yeah, I think Felix, you could see these flashes of brilliance in the past. And, uh, I mean, I don't think anyone expected him to do what he did this year uh, in terms of at the Tour. Because even with flashes of brilliance, like, that was incredible. So, so yeah, definitely some big surprises this year. So, that's cool. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by Science. Do, are there things I want to change? Yes. Uh, whether, I mean, I don't know if it was, yeah, I guess the Vuelta made me, you know, just realize, like, essentially what I need to attack the winner, sort of, you know? Um, and, yeah. Well, Larry, that was the late summer in Madrid and the sunlight fading over the Fuente de Cibeles in Madrid. Um, honeyed memories, great memories. Um, romantic scene always is at the end of the Vuelta. And and that was us in conversation, brief conversation, after the last stage of the Vuelta a España. We'd followed your fortunes throughout the three weeks as we had at the Giro d'Italia. And you were sort of in pensive mood at the end of the Vuelta. And that was a sort of vow there that, or a, a resolution that you had things to work on um, and that you, you know, you were going to sort of set about them um, ahead of next year. Now, Larry, at the Vuelta, I got the sense, speaking to you on a relatively regular basis, we spoke most days, I suppose, that at times you were a little bit shell-shocked at the Vuelta. And I, I think you were t- you were probably very tired. Um, and we, we, we said earlier how many days you'd raced, um, 88 or 89 days if we include Unbound. You were probably very tired. But I got the sense from you and quite a lot of riders that I was speaking to regularly at the Vuelta that it... it, it was harder than they expected it surpassed their maybe dimmest um most doom laden sort of predictions about how hard the welter was going to be and i I don't know was i wrong about that were you slightly rocked shocked jaded or shocked by the (laughs) welter yeah 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 i mean definitely um you know i think a lot of us were um you know, I think the thing is, is like the way we raced was extremely intense. Um, and, you know, it's like, for example, you can do the Giro and it's super hard, uh, but it's super hard because of the course, right? You know, it's like you do these crazy long climbs, you know, hour long climbs, then, you know, 
like linked, you know, over the course of the day, you do like three, four climbs that are just like insanely long. So you're just kind of like suffering. It's like a dull mm. suffering the whole day, right? Whereas like the Vuelta was super intense, you know, I mean, it was just like full gas racing the entire time. Um, and, you know, so less by the course, but more how we raced the race, you know, and, you know, I, I think, uh, what, you know, a big thing of it was also just like, jumbo strength and you know it's like um you know it was kind of like i think part of it was they were trying to balance between having three leaders and they wanted to give each of them sort of a chance so um when you have three guys that want to win you know their share of stages uh that means in the end they end up going for yeah a lot of the stages i think that was sort of what i think a lot of people were sort of shocked by was in a normal situation in a grand tour um you know there's like the leaders team and on a certain number of days they just let the break Mm. go um and the break fights for the win in the peloton it's easier you can rest a bit more whatever whereas like in this vuelta you know there was a period of time where it just seemed like jumbo was just gonna win every single stage you know because it was like uh, you know, one day it was like Vingegaard wanted to win for his daughter, you know, uh, and then, you know, I mean, okay, the next day their teammate, he had had a heart attack. They wanted to win for him that, I, you know, I totally understand, but you know, it was like every day when everyone's like, Oh, it's like, uh, you know, Oh, this is definitely a day for the breakaway. Mm. You know, like Jumbo's won the last 73 stages of the race. It's like, uh, surely, today is the day for the breakaway and everyone's you know goes full 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 you know and it makes like this crazy start where it's just attacking for 100 kilometers and then in the end jumbo would be like well we're so close to the finish line (laughs) we might as well win this one too you know so i think that kind of demoralized a lot of people because they were definitely a level above everyone else i I did feel Um, i mean usually when you speak to riders they talk in terms of a race a grand tour being hard I, i did feel just and and we have to interpret the, the sort of the, the the limited messages we get this kind of coded language that we get from riders and try and deduce try and draw conclusions from it but it did sound as though people felt that the destiny of the race was being bent to the sort of will and whim of Jumbo Visma that they were like a pack of huskies pulling the sled dog uh, sorry the sled that was the rest of the race behind them at times that was the message that I was kind of getting yeah I mean yeah 100% you know I, I think the thing is a lot of people you know then you know everyone talks and like you know people are going on like oh my god how are they so good you know but I guess the thing that I see is like you know, we were talking about like, oh, what, where could my team, you know, go, you know, what could they change to be better or get more results? Like, is there one thing? And it's like, I think the thing is, is there's so many small details and Jumbo has sort of like just essentially analyzed every single detail and maximized the possibility for performance in every one. So, you know, I think for me, you know, it starts, they probably have great planning you know, all of them, they race significantly less days than most other teams. And they're really big into like preparing for each block of racing, you know, so they do this huge, crazy training block with like, you know, a really long altitude camp before each block. And, uh, you know, then they race for like a concentrated period of time, and then they have a rest, another build, you know, so maybe they do this two or three times in the year. So, you know, 
at the beginning, they already take the best guys, right? So they sign, you know, the most talented guys. Then they give them the best training and preparation. Um, you know, so it's not every team that plans that well and allows their guys to have, you know, like say a month to prepare for a block of racing. Because, yeah, I guess maybe some other teams, they don't sort of have that ability to have that many guys sort of on the side um, and they need more guys to race. And then, you know, I think another thing is they are so into the equipment um, piece and everything is like, you know, dialed 100%. So, you know, you, you know, I mean, they play with things a lot more than the other teams in terms of like, you know, it's funny because like with Aqua Blue back in the day, we were running these one buys and everyone was like, you know, thought it was like the, the single the biggest joke on earth, bikes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and now all of a sudden you see Jumbo like, you know, uh, Vingegaard's riding with uh, one buy or, you know, Roglic in the Giro. You know, it's like they're really optimizing every little piece. And when you already take the best guys, then you give them the best preparation. Then you give them, you know, the most optimized equipment. You know, and it's like also their kit, you know, their skin suits, all these little things, they add up. And when someone's already like here and then, you know, you give them everything mm -hmm. the best, you know, they go here. Whereas like if you take some guys who perhaps are, um, yeah, not as talented and then you give them less good preparation, it's just like, uh, you know, I guess uh, a very large gap between. So, if, if, yeah, to me, that's part of the if, reason. If, Larry, you had to Sorry. put your finger on the difference in perception of Jumbo Visma to... Because you also experienced the Sky Years and the, well, what are now Ineos. Yeah. And it was a very... We heard very similar things then and the results were very similar. It was total domination in certain areas of the sport. Um, can you see any, any differences in the uh approaches or is it just that Jumbo Visma's version of this approach is four years further on five years further on yeah I mean I guess the thing is it was like Sky was super dominant in doing a similar thing before any other team was sort of like on the cutting edge right you know like I would say 90% of cycling back then was you know a lot of years behind right where I would say the difference is now everyone is trying to be on the cutting edge, right? You know, everyone is trying to do what Sky was doing those years ago, right? But so the fact that they can still find these gains where a lot of teams are looking for them now, whereas before they just kind of, yeah, did things the way they've always been done. Um, that's what's so impressive, I think, about Which Jumbo. They do is like you know you by, still which they do sorry. by recruiting so how do they find those gains where other teams aren't finding them no, is I, it better I mean, specialists um a more driven approach i think yeah you know i think it's uh i don't know maybe they just have like a better they have better systems i guess i, I don't really know you know it's like i i think for example you know, if they're going to go do a grand tour, they bring their entire team plus their reserves, okay? So, Giro, you know, they're bringing 10 guys to altitude mm -hmm. for this pre-Giro camp, right? And they do three weeks and they, you know, it's like they're extremely methodical in the way they do things. Whereas, like, say, for example, you know, in AOS or Sky, maybe they bring mm -hmm. half the team, you know, four or five guys. You know, it's like maybe it's also they treat everyone almost mm. the same right you know everyone's getting this 
same, you know, training camp preparation rather than like two leaders. And then it brings up the level of the whole team. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I think they are really taking all the equipment research sort of to like the next level. Um, where, yeah, I think that that makes a big difference. Whereas like maybe some other teams, they aren't going that in depth. Um, and then I think a big thing is their, their planning and, you know, how they, um, I guess, plan the whole season. And I mean, maybe if I think about one big difference between Ineos and Jumbo now, I mean, I don't know if this is making a big impact, but like Ineos doesn't have a development team and Jumbo does. And, uh, okay, that's not only like pulling riders, right? But like, it's more the fact that, uh, for example, like if jump, or I mean, if Ineos needs a reserve for a race, they're going to take, you know, one of the pros. Whereas like uh, Jumbo's going to, every time for the smaller races, they're always going to take uh, someone from the Continental team. And I think that allows them to run this program where, yeah, they race less and train more um, and are better prepared for the races when mm. they get there. Mm. But I mean, I don't know. There's probably <clears throat> a lot more things that are go that go into it than uh, I can see from my not perfectly trained. Well, guy, Larry, as things stand, you'll be riding for AG2 Citroën and not Jumbo Visma next year. Um, I talked about... True. That, <laughs> your fr- so, sort of very determined stance attitude voice um at the end of the vuelta you know you were a man on, with n- not on a mission immediately but the there were certainly things you wanted to work on maybe change improve um have you got clearer ideas about what they might be now in november yeah i mean i guess there are a couple of things i need to work on i would say um, well, first of all, and this is something that I spoke to the team about in my, you know, last meeting is, uh, I can't race as much as I raced this year. You know, I think like you were saying, yes, my availability was very good. Um, but the problem is, is if you're only racing, yeah, you don't have these periods of time to build. And I know that's something that is very beneficial to everyone, you know? So it's like, I never really had a time to like take a break, reset and then rebuild. Um, and I think that really impacted me because the problem was, yeah, you know, on our team, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons our team has fallen from, you know, eighth to whatever to 18th this year um, is, you know, they wanted to sort of go in the same direction as all these other teams signing, you know, a bunch of young guys. So the last two years, I think we signed like almost, well, last year we signed five Neo pros and maybe the year mm-hmm. before also. Um, so, but every time we signed these five Neo pros, we got rid of guys with yeah. like a ton of experience, you know? So we lost some really experienced guys and gained, you know, a lot of young guys, which, you know, maybe a few years down the yeah. road, they're going to be great. And but maybe they can't that'll do pay off. Days. But like, uh, exactly. And the problem is we had so many guys who were sick, injured, whatever. And then, you know, a guy like me always had to sort of pick up the slack, you know? So, I ended up getting put into a lot more races than I was supposed to do. You know, I was at altitude, got brought down to go do um, uh, Pay Vasco. You know, I also got thrown in San Remo last minute. And then because I did San Remo, I had to do Milano Torino. Then, you know, essentially, I just ended up getting put into race after race. You know, second part of the year, I had to end up doing Burgos when that wasn't in the plan. Um, and then, you know, so it's like every time I would have had a, a break, uh, 
I ended up just doing race after race after race. And, you know, I think that sort of cost me a lot. So that's not exactly something I'm in control of, you know, um, because, yeah, if the team needs me to go to a race, I go to the race, right? And I think the thing is, is like, yes, I can always do the job, right? You know, I'm always, I'm quite stable. Uh, maybe I don't have these crazy highs, but I don't have these crazy lows either. And so I'm always going to be capable of, you know, doing a good job. Um, but yeah, I guess that sort of stopped me from ever reaching my best. So hopefully next year, we're going to also have a development team, a continental team. And I think that's going to kind of relieve a lot of pressure off a lot of us who, yeah, ended up having to fill in a lot of holes this year. Um, so that's one thing. Hopefully uh, that'll be better. Uh, you know, another thing for me is like, yeah, it's not something that uh, is fun or, or, you know, it's not always the best thing to talk about. But like, I was definitely a bit too heavy this year. Um, so why? You know, I don't really know. But it could also be, you know, for me... Another thing is, is I always, I cannot like lose weight at a race and the best I can do is stay the same. But often if you race a lot, you end up gaining weight over the course mm. of like I, a, a I, series of races. Because I was discussing this with someone yesterday. Um, there was a, an interesting piece written by Jim Cotton on Velo News, what used to be called Velo News, now Velo, um, yeah. about this carbohydrate, high carb intake revolution in professional cycling over the last few years and was just talking with a couple of people about how well calorie intake and the ability to maintain weight is often talked about by physiologists as a really good quality um that's often yeah yeah oh, i'm great at, I'm <laughs> yeah, great at yeah. that yeah, yeah particularly yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in major tours the guys who tend to do best are the guys who don't lose weight and can keep eating right keep consuming but yeah. obviously there's a there's a Yes. which you know if you're if you, yeah like if you're visiting uh, taco bell after every stage then i don't think that's what you're doing exactly exactly no my, my first grand tour i uh you know like we were you know with bmc we were kind of on the forefront mm. of this whole haribo eating thing after the stage right um and so my first grand tour in 2014 with bmc uh you know i was like well you know gotta replenish the carbs right so i bought something like i don't know how many kilos of haribo but like i maybe consumed something like five kilos of haribo like on the side uh just out of my suitcase over the course of uh the vuelta that year you and still have uh, teeth. i think i gained you still have teeth yeah Oh, I'm good. I'm really good. I'm really good brusher, you know. Uh, I'm very uh, diligent toothbrusher. But uh, yeah, I think I gained at least three kilos during the the Vuelta, if not more, actually. And so you didn't that win was the not beneficial to year. me. <laughs> not that. Did one. not win the Vuelta that year. Uh, but yeah. So anyway, um, you know, I think over the course of the season, I was probably heavier than I've been every other any other year of my career we talk, um, we're talking tiny margins and you guys now you talk in terms of one kilo you know back in the day it was maybe no this is like okay, maybe two okay. two say say well say on average on average i was between one okay. and two kilos heavier over Enough the to make entire a bit year of a like if you just okay. took the average of the whole year yeah. that can make a big difference you know i mean the thing is is like you know these if you look just on one climb, sure, it's not a big difference, right? You know, it's maybe a few seconds, whatever. But every single acceleration, you know, a couple kilos, that makes a huge difference. You know, if Jumbo is riding with a computer that's like this big for the the mountain stages, 
obviously, uh, you know, even if it's only like 30 grams lighter than the bigger one, that must make some difference. You know, they're not riding this tiny little thing for show, right? So, um, you know, I would say one to two kilos makes a big difference. And yeah, I guess just sort of the accumulation of every acceleration of every climb, um, you know, then there's also like the whole heat dissipation thing. Uh, if you have like a little extra weight, you know, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. And, um, so yeah, for me, that's like a big thing is I kind of need to just start the season at a lower weight. Um, and that's always sort of been one of my challenges over the my whole career because you know I just I love eating and uh, I don't really love restricting or counting or measuring, but uh, yeah you know that's a huge huge thing now and you know I maybe mentioned it before the Vuelta but you know you see now it's it's insane like uh, when I was up at altitude um, you know every single rider is working with a nutritionist now every single rider was going to the buffet with their little food scale to measure everything and and this isn't necessarily just to lose weight this is also to like make sure you're eating enough on the important days but it's just you know now we're approaching nutrition like we're approaching training you know everything is calculated and measured and you know noted and recorded so we know exactly what's going in what's going out and you know i think that is why we're seeing like that article said you know these huge gains and progressions and increases in speed you know a huge part of that is nutrition and uh you know i would say for me it's important to sort of just get on that early and uh yeah i guess start the season at a really good weight so you know i would guess my november project will be uh to shed a few pounds he's still looking very swell larry (laughs) well i'm sure you know the good thing is i always look lean right so like that's you know there are some guys who you can really see it but i always have sort of like veins coming out my arms and stuff so the team always thinks i'm lean which is good because i don't want to be dark shades you know that um that 11 o'clock yeah 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 yeah. yeah. um 11 o'clock shadow exactly it's it's, what no no five o'clock shadow right Larry, yeah. I'm sh- we could go into a lot more detail. We could get even further into the weeds. And maybe maybe we should do in a few weeks when we're a bit closer to the precipice of the 2024 season. Um, we'll certainly be checking in with you again over the winter and doing more podcasts with you. Um, we'll leave it there for now. Um, it's been great catching up, Larry. And... Um, yeah, as I said, look Thanks, forward Daniel. to more of that over the winter. Um, any more plans for... You haven't got many more days in the States, have you? No. So maybe visit some friends this weekend. Um, but yeah, pretty much just chilling with the family and yeah, then uh, heading back over and getting back started. Yeah. Just tell us before you go, so you're back on the bike next week. Yeah. What's the first week look like? I mean, to be honest, I haven't seen yet, but I I mean, I imagine we'll start pretty slow, you know, like two hours a day, two and a half hours, maybe working up to some three hour rides by the end of the week, maybe, you know, but I think it's going to be a pretty slow start. Any efforts whatsoever? Or is it just sort of Mm. riding the way Naira Quintana runs on a treadmill? (laughs) Hopefully faster than that, you know. Pumping your arms. I I would assume there will be some kind of efforts, you know, but like just small, you know, maybe some small accelerations, you know, like... I don't know, I was reading there's some data out there, you know, essentially, if you don't ever simulate the VO2 system over the course of the off season, like, you're never even going to reach the same level um, next year. Uh, So, you know, I think there needs to be a little bit of stimulus, but it doesn't necessarily need need to be huge. So I imagine, you know, 
a few efforts, but nothing crazy, you know, say maybe two days a week, some smaller efforts and just sort of slowly getting back into it. But definitely a lot less hard than I would do them mm. uh, in the middle of the season. There, there was uh, an article um, published a couple of years ago, you know, Killian Journey, the greatest yeah. sort of trail runner, mountain runner um, of all time, still competing and he sort of released all his training data a couple of years ago in in a magazine published it and he didn't get out of sort of zone two which is very low heart rate for about six months over the winter um i know but i guess the other thing is is like you know the feats that he's doing are perhaps less uh stochastic than cycling you know uh we have like crazy huge accelerations and sprints and things like that whereas like if you're a mountain runner you know it's like yeah, maybe you're going to get up to sort of like VO2 max, but maybe his sort of his shortest efforts are maybe like an hour. You know what I mean? Like uh, where you're going to be going to steady pace the entire hour. Um, And then, you know, a lot of his feats are like multi-day things, right? So, um, you know, I just think it's a different type of training. But for sure, I would say like, even if you're not going crazy hard, you're still... uh, yeah, I, I don't know. One off season, I only did sort of like zone two kind of stuff. And the first time we did an effort, I actually, yeah, maybe almost did my best 20 minutes or I wasn't I far off gonna of it. I thought you were going to say so. died then. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and when we did an effort, I died. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, but uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe there are some ways that are slightly better than others, but we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, Larry, best of luck with that next week. Getting back on the bike and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Larry. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Creed, and Lionel Byrne. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.